From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we stand at the crossroads as we mark 50 years since the marches in Selma, Alabama. We speak with noted organizer and civil rights leader, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. We look backwards and ask what the marches meant to America, but we also look ahead and ask what's next and what is coming in the struggle for human rights. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jesse Jackson. For more than half a century, Reverend Jackson has been a visible and central figure in civil rights efforts in the United States and abroad. He marched in Selma and worked closely with Dr. Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He's twice been a candidate for president of the United States and has served as the U.S. Shadow Senator from the District of Columbia from 1991 to 1997. Through the 1970s and 1980s, Reverend Jackson founded several organizations that have now become the Rainbow Push Coalition, a multiracial, multi-issue, progressive international membership organization fighting for social change. Reverend Jesse Jackson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good to share with you today. Well, the context for our conversation is the 50th anniversary of the marches in Selma, Alabama. And I wonder if we could begin with you briefly telling our listeners if there's one or two memories that stand out most vividly for you from that time. One of the most vivid memories, uh, I came to Chicago Theological Seminary in 1964. The first seminary uh, university gave Dr. King an honorary degree, I might add, in, I think 1957. And uh, I call myself stepping away from the activism in North Carolina for as uh, long as it would take to get my seminary degree and then go back south to serve. And so for I did kind of low-level organizing for the first year. But then that Sunday when the explosive bridge bloody Sunday took place, I determined that I would go to Selma and a group of students. Dr. Schumer, Howard Schumer, who was our president, said we should not go. We should stay and deal with our studies and our books. There would be more demonstrations. Well, we went anyhow. We got to Selma. The first person we saw was Dr. Schumer. <laughs> the, the, the white guy you see on the front of the of the demonstration, Dr. King and the Greek Orthodox leaders, is Dr. Howard Schumer from Chicago Theological Seminary. So. The seminary's involvement in that in that season uh, is a part of my memory. Dr. King later came to Chicago and launched, in some sense, Operation Brewer Basket Project at the seminary, but also gave a major address on the reasons why he had to challenge the Vietnam War. So a lot of activities spun around the Chicago Theological Seminary in 1965. Well, and you mentioned Operation Breadbasket, and you were the, the director of that for a period of time. What was the task of Operation Breadbasket? What was it doing? Well, while Dr. King wanted to get legislative changes in social policy, he wanted ministers to have an acute role in 
economic justice, and he knew that would come with whom with which we had one-way trade. We trade with them; they wouldn't trade with us. Blacks couldn't drive garbage trucks; could not be uh, check out uh, work as checking out at the grocery stores; could not be produce managers, and the whole range of. And yet we we uh, were consumers. So the idea of ministers fight for jobs and rights to go to these companies and say, you know, we expect you to uh, respond to us in a reciprocal fact. We trade with you. You trade with us. We begin to leverage our consumer power to get our share of jobs and job training and truck drivers uh, and contracts and money in our banks. It became a whole urban economic movement. It went far beyond jobs. The first black chain store built grocery store for the seventh Calumet was one of our negotiations. It became a a real programmatic thrust of Dr. Haynes' work so much so until the last night uh, his last speech in Memphis uh, uh, April 3rd, that he referred to Breadbasket who we knew with ministers in Memphis at that time. But the, the roots of the, taking that program to this great conclusion came out of Chicago in 66. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson about Selma and 50 years of civil rights struggle. A lot of your work through the years has been a combination of this civil rights struggle with economic opportunity, and it seems like Operation Breadbasket was a launching pad for that. But I wonder, as you've looked back through the years, what is the relationship between economic opportunity and and civil rights opportunity? Well, economic opportunity is a civil right. The right to uh, a job, uh, the, the right to collective bargaining that workers might be heard, the right to contracts, um, the right to job training, all of that. Uh, because if you have public accommodations and you're out of slavery and you're free, free but can't vote, free but can't get a good education, free but can't get health care, uh, free without a job, free to vote in. So part of our civil rights struggle is equal and adequate protection under the law. So our struggle for uh, economic parity, for two-way trade, to leverage our consumer strength locally, nationally, and internationally in support of the civil rights struggle. Today, we are fundamentally free but unequal. I mean, 246 years of legal slavery, slavery in it, but the infrastructure of the slaveholders was not altered at all. So we are free from slavery. Then another 100 years of fighting legal Jim Crow, of where we were, a society was legally separated into these racial, uh, uh, behind these racial walls, then we had the right to vote. Now, the King's point was, if you're out of slavery, out of segregation, have the right to vote, but don't have access to capital um, and jobs uh, and relationships, uh, you still cannot grow. So today we fight for economic justice as part of our civil rights struggle. And, sir, do you see that as as being something that needs to come from the grassroots and the ground up, or should it come from a government program, or is it a mixture of the two well, in your it vision? Comes, 
both and access to capital, industry, technology, and deal flow. The government, if it enforces the law, those government contractors must have uh, must be inclusive uh, of multiracial, multicultural distribution of jobs and contracts. Uh, affirmative action for women and people of color. So, one level, it is the government itself must fulfill its own obligation to offset the damaging impact of years of separation and denial. On the other hand, you can use your consumer strength. Right now we're working assiduously in Silicon Valley. We all use these products, Apple and eBay and Google and Microsoft, and yet we look at the top 20 companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, Though sometimes we index 25 to 40 percent of the companies. Uh, 189 board members, 36 white women, three African Americans, and one Latino. C suites like 370, uh, like three Latinos and three African Americans. On uh, employment, down to around 2%. Uh, investment startups hardly exist except Intel. And Apple has now begun a, a program that comes out of our work. And so, beyond. Uh, the, the slavery and, and Jim Crow, the right to vote is access to economic opportunity Com- completes the, uh, the mission. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, looking back at 50 years of civil rights struggle and looking ahead at what is yet to come. You mentioned a moment ago that you were challenged uh, by mentors to study philosophy and history and theology. And I'd like to ask about the relationship of theological training to activism. How does the gospel inform and sustain your work for social change? What is the connection? Well, you know, we live in our faith, whatever our faith may be. We live on the, the law. And people of faith must fight unjust law. When you're, fight, when you're under unjust law, you're under occupation, you're in exile, Either adjust to your situation and rationalize that's your place in life, or you resent it and carry with you the burden of anger, or you resist and figure out a way to fight back, to change from unjust laws to just laws. And that's, in some sense, Rose Parks was obeying the unjust law going to the back of the bus, but she challenged that law by being willing to sacrifice and be an agent for change. And that's what precipitated the Montgomery bus boycott. Invariably, change of unjust laws involves sacrifice. It involves risk. Um, and much of my theological training sent me in that direction. After all, we tend to worship Jesus as a source of piety and not power. How do you worship? You do justice. You didn't say class pans and look down and rich and have introspective thoughts. Meditation has its place, but he was born under, uh, Jesus was born as a Jew under occupation, under big temple domination, uh, and one might argue corruption, and the Roman occupation. And, and in the search for him, the government engaged in genocide, killing all the first one babies looking for him. Uh, Mary 
angels were both confused as to his the source of his birth. Um, but in some miraculous way, he was determined through a dream that Joseph and Mary should escape to Egypt. He left uh, and went as a refugee. But when he finished that exile and came back at age 12 and went away again to age 30, he came back fighting to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and set the captive free as a measure of definition. How do you know me? By how you treat the least of these, those whose backs are against the wall. So my whole sense of theology and religion is built around how we defend those whose backs are against the wall. And that means that you really must be multicultural and multiracial because uh, you don't know whose back may be against the wall. It may be an African-American. It may be a woman. It may be a Palestinian. It may be a, a, a Cuban. Uh, whoever's back is against the wall, that they might be free and free indeed. You're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. We're looking back at the history of the marches on Selma 50 years ago, and we're asking the question, both what happened, but also what is yet to come in the struggle for civil rights and human rights. My conversation with Reverend Jackson was made possible by our friends at the Chicago Theological Seminary in the context of their Selma at 50 Still Marching conference that occurred in April of 2015. Reverend Jackson is an alumnus of Chicago Theological Seminary and participated in the march 50 years ago, the commemorative march earlier this year, and the conference event. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you as always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and we're looking backwards at the marches in Selma 50 years ago and asking the question both what happened and what comes next. A few moments ago, you mentioned that when you went down to Selma, you had been told by the president of Chicago Theological Seminary not to go, but then when you arrived, there was the president of Chicago Theological Seminary. How did it make you feel when, when you saw that the leader of your school was there at the front of the march? It was a fulfilling moment. It was, it was uh, out of love. He was not being hostile. He just wanted us, you know, it was so easy to get caught up in the demonstrations of that season and drop out of school. With the long distance run that you had to get your proper training, I remember 
I almost left school one time when I was at North Carolina A&T, and Dr. Sam Proctor was uh, the president. And I said, Doc, I think I want to take off a couple of semesters to just work full-time in the field. He said, do you want to be a student in the movement or a student of the movement? To be a student of the movement, you've got to get some education. You've got to get some seminary or legal training to be a long-distance runner. So I had to make a choice, student in the movement or student of it. That means studying history and philosophy and theology and economics and the social forces to make up the society. And so I knew that Dr. Schumer's challenge to us was not hostile. He was trying to work at that delicate balance between being in seminary, getting trained to work, and being on the on the battlefield. So it was a, I mean, he did not uh, punish us. <laughs> it was a kind of joyous celebration. Doc, you said we shouldn't come, but you're here. So we kind of laughed it off. Well, when you when you stand up for those whose back is against the wall, the powers that be oftentimes don't take a kind eye to that. And I, I as I'm listening to you talk about your memories, I'm wondering when you went to Selma, when you were involved in these struggles on behalf of of the least of these among us, were you ever afraid? And how did you deal with that fear? You know, I was at a stage uh, where the joy of living was important to me, but I knew it was that we, we risked being killed. I'd already been to jail several times, and so I found in Selma a certain fulfilling moment. I couldn't fully appreciate the impact of that moment, how it changed the world, literally how it was a source of power to democratize the world. You know, we went to Selma in 65. Blacks couldn't vote because the Voting Rights Act had been held up since 1870 by the Thomas, by the Jefferson Davis Democrats. Um, but we got the right to vote in 65, 65. White women couldn't serve on juries. They got that in 1967. 18-year-olds couldn't vote. Those serving in Vietnam, you couldn't vote on college campuses. Um, you couldn't vote bilingually. You couldn't get delegates at conventions proportionately. It took us 25 years beyond Selma to begin to democratize our economy. And when President Barack won in 08, it was not so much that America changed, but opportunities had changed for those who have been locked out. And the old God very much remained the old God. They still vote in segregated patterns. They still often hostile to social justice. But the new America that came out of the Selma movement led, its, led, led us to a new level of moral authority around the world. We couldn't very well speak about freedom in South Africa if we were as segregated as they were in South Africa. We couldn't very well challenge China on matters of democracy if we still uh, had segregation based upon race. And so much of our moral authority comes out of the bloodshed of Selma. You mentioned a moment ago the election of, of President Barack Obama, and I wonder, after almost eight years of his presidency, as you've as you've watched this historic milestone pass, what still what still remains as challenges? What what do we face still in terms of race and racial relations now that we've had that barrier broken? Well, we've shifted from horizontal segregation to vertical vertical segregation. Some instances not race segregation, in some instances is resource and race polarization of segregation. Uh, when President Obama came in, we lost 
800,000 jobs that month. We've not had a, a, a month of losing jobs, sometimes not creating as many as we wanted to, but every month of creation of jobs, the economy for certain elements are stronger now. I might add that those 9 million who lost their homes in the uh, recession uh, have not recovered. We bailed out the banks but not linked to lending another reinvestment and therefore did not bail out the homeowners and drove millions from middle class into poverty and into bankruptcy. Um, he also fought to make access to college more affordable, though it is much too high still, student loan debt, the great and credit card debt. Uh, he fought to provide health care for every American. What a moral mission. It had faced unbelievable resistance and resentment that people who've never had health care before in their lives, all down to Appalachia, white, black, brown, mostly women and children and veterans, who have been led against it. They want uh, affordable health care with its benefits, but don't want Obamacare, which, of course, is the same thing. So the one affordable health care and not want Obamacare is, is, not, is like wanting an omelet but don't want the eggs. <laughs> Some are just resentful and, and mean. Uh, he has done a lot. And I think we're not for the barriers of hostility could even have done or could do more. One would be the issue of, of access to fast rail transportation, which would be cheaper, more efficient, environmentally secure, and connect small towns and big cities. That would be a huge step for we can make the steel lay the rail build the cars but because it's his idea it's, it's, it's resisted so one would say there has been uh, some undeniable pluses in this period on the other hand the Confederates taking over the Congress uh, has meant an ideological warfare uh, South Carolina one fourth of its people are in poverty yet they resist uh, Medicaid, $10 billion. Uh, people literally die because they can't get medical care. The same is true in Alabama. They've attacked the Voting Rights Act, making access to voting more difficult. And the 65 Voting Rights Act with protections was lost to the, to the Shelby, Alabama interpretation June 2013 to make voting more difficult again. So the civil rights struggle of the 60s is now on the real attack. When you look at that, when you look at the, the attacks and the ideological hardening that has come from the right, I wonder what is your emotional response? Do you feel angry? Do you feel frustrated? Do you feel hopeful? Well, I'm not saying it frustrates me. I'm disappointed that we as a nation would, would benefit so much from going forward and yet take pride in going backwards. I say often that the New South is made possible by the Civil Rights Movement. It was the largest region in the country. And the poorest region has received the most benefits from the civil rights struggle and still the most anti. You couldn't have the Carolina Panthers and Atlanta Falcons behind the cotton curtain of the Dallas Cowboys, the San Antonio Spurs, or the Miami Heat. Those teams would have been illegal. Uh, you couldn't have had the big Alabama LSU game behind the cotton curtain or the Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, or people like Jimmy Carter from Plains. Um, Georgia, uh, Jimmy Carr, Bill Clinton from Hope, Arkansas, uh, Bush from Odessa, Texas. We removed the stigma from the South. So the New South, where you have Honda and Toyota and Boeing, 
Uh, we have athletics. The, the New South uh, is made possible by our struggle. You hold the line just a minute, please. Yes, sir. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and we're looking both back at 50 years of civil rights struggle and forward to the next generation. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm sorry, sir. That's all right. Um, uh, Are you ready to return to the interview? Yeah, we we can continue. Okay, thank you, sir. Well, we can look back at the struggles of 50 years ago, but there's also a new generation of activists who are coming into the struggle now. And and as, as you are aging and other civil rights leaders are aging, the baton is being passed to this new generation. And I wonder, what challenges do you see facing this new generation of activists that didn't you know, exist? Uh, I don't like the analogy of the baton being passed. There is no baton to pass there's service to be rendered. And leadership comes from service, and it is intergenerational service. Dr. King was 26, 27, 1955, but he came through the local NAACP chapter, which at that time was over 50 years old, and with older ministers, he, he gained the trust of those leaders uh, as a younger person, and built upon their legacies, it was intergenerational. You know, Jesus and Matthew were the two generations from Moses. Uh, life is intergenerational, and so it is time for the continuation of the unfinished business of our struggle. One being that um, there's too much poverty and too much violence in the land and in the world. And some of the some of the violence related to some of the poverty. Too few have too much, more than they will ever need, and too many have too little and cannot make ends meet. And that is lays the groundwork for a kind of rebellion, if not insurrection, by the people. And I would hope that those who protest around Ferguson would appreciate how meaningful the activity has been during this season. But uh, we're, we're reacting right now to being on, on um, blacks being shot as opposed to proacting towards fighting for uh, a revival on poverty, a job, an income for every American, make America more economically secure. Uh, it's time for it. Like that was a NATO summit in Chicago some two years ago, we should have an urban summit. How does one build adequate housing and train our youth to be able to have the skill set to do the training or give them STEM education or computer science education, uh, the access to transportation? It's time for a new policy. And, and reacting to somebody being shot is understandable, but that is not a proactive policy for change, and that's what we need. If I'm hearing what you're saying, sir, just like your mentor years ago said, you need to step back from the immediacy and study philosophy and theology to go back into the struggle better equipped. If I'm hearing you correctly, there's there's a, an immediate response to events in Ferguson and others, but you're saying we need a more global and long-range strategy as well. Am I hearing that correctly? We do, because um, 
you can't teach what you don't know. And you can't leave where you don't go on, on not following somebody who has been there. The same Dr. Shoma who challenged us to become more socially conscious and challenged us to stay in school and not come to Selma but did not, you know, resist us too hard. We also went to, as a, as, as a steward of the National Council of Churches, I went to South Africa with him in 1979. I was led and bred by Chicago Theological Seminary leadership, Dr. Shoma, Dr. Frank Littell, uh, Reverend Dr. Alvin Pitcher, Chicago Theological Seminary, uh, Paul Tillich, and, and Randall Niebuhr. We were driven by the ideas of those who helped to pave the way. Well, when I think about the, the long arc of the civil rights struggle, I also think about a figure like Malcolm X, who late in his life began thinking about global relations of oppression rather than simply looking at American relations of oppression. And my question to you, sir, would be, would there be a value in shifting the language we're using now about issues to a framework of human rights instead of civil rights, or is there still Well, a human place? rights is important. It's, it's so fundamental, but and it's important because we live in the one world family. I was asked on one occasion when I first ran for president, and they were trying to figure out how to relate to me. They said, well, Reverend, we're going to have a debate tomorrow night on foreign policy. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to show up for the debate. I said, I'm anxious to be part of the foreign policy debate. They said, well, why? I said, you know, we can be on a foreign policy. Slavery was a foreign policy. America's uh, uh, 246 years of work without wages, its labor, its slave trade was a foreign policy. Uh, we live in a one-world order. If you and I go on a plane today in New York, one flying to L.A. and one flying to Senegal, we get there about the same time. We live in a world that's small. And so learning global uh, justice, we we, uh, we globalize capital, we must globalize human rights and workers' rights and women's rights and children's rights and environmental security. I remember some years ago, uh, there was a, a, a crisis, a, a, a nuclear crisis in uh, Russia. And I think it was Chernobyl. Am I right about that? Yes, sir. There, there was a nuclear crisis and in And when it first happened, um, the response I saw by journalists was they have a crisis in Russia as if to say they are less excellent than we are. They made a mistake. That They have a problem. Well, they did have a problem, but the wind blew. And Europe had a problem, and the wind kept blowing, and cows in Oregon had the problem. We live in the one-world order, and that's why we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, a die apart as foolish people, because we're too interlinked in both our joys and our pain. The, the crisis with Ebola. An epidemic breaks out in, in the Congo and in Liberia, and someone dies in Texas. We live in a one-world order. You mentioned a moment ago that we live together or we die in our foolishness. We seem awful, awfully uh, wedded to our foolishness. Why do you think that is? Well, we've learned some bad lessons well. We've learned to survive apart. We're taught to survive apart. And we've not learned to live together. We have a great, a false sense of independence, another an appreciation of interdependence. We, 
and need each other. Our languages are different, but the message must be the same. Share, hope, healing, food, adequate shelter, water, uh, oxygen in which you can breathe. And so that our languages are different, but we live in our message of sharing human rights and values must be upmost in our minds. I remember one time when Dr. Shulman and I first went to South Africa. And somehow I was naive enough to think I could uh, get in there kind of quietly, and, but they already released to the press my background at that time, which was 1979. I first went to jail in 1960. And there was this huge body of press for me to sit there and put. And they said, well, why are you here? I said, well, we invited by the South African Council of Churches. We were here to meet some of our church friends. Well, why are you really here? I said, we're here to see what life is like in South Africa, uh, get an objective analysis. Why are you really here? I said, we're here to visit the country. I was trying to be evasive, so I didn't want to say something to make them put me right back on the plane and send me right back out the country. The founders said, well, what do you think about our politics? I said, well, I believe we should measure human rights by one yardstick and have human rights for all human beings. That's it. That's that. You're meddling in our internal affairs. The idea of measuring human rights by one yardstick. Because it's antithetical to the part that human rights for all human beings measured by one yardstick was a threat to that system. You're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson in the context of the 50th anniversary of the marches on Selma. We're looking backwards at what happened and we're looking forwards at what is yet to come. You can find out more at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Again, we're thankful to our friends at Chicago Theological Seminary for making this conversation possible. We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash things not seen radio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're looking back 50 years ago at the marches on Selma, asking what happened and pivoting to look forward to ask what is to come next in the struggle for human rights and civil rights. We're speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was present at those marches 50 years ago and was present at the commemorative march in 2015, and it was also a participant in the Chicago Theological Seminary Selma at 50 Still Marching Conference, and that was the context for our conversation today. And we are very thankful to our friends at Chicago Theological Seminary for helping to make this conversation possible. 
if we look at media today in America, it seems that in recent years there are some in the media who take the position that the problem that we're facing really is not racism, but that we're still talking about racism. And I wonder if you could reflect on how we reached the point where talking about the problem for some has been viewed as worse than the problem itself. Racism, structural, personal, emotional, political, economic is is in the DNA of America. We were born in the sin, shaping the iniquity of racism, born uh, trading, buying and selling African people, born uh, exterminating Native Americans. And much of our wealth prerogatives come from those acts of inhumanity. And uh, those, the root of those issues have not really been dealt with. Uh, for example, when we say Emmett Till, we think of lynching, uh, and that's kind of our symbol. But between 1880 and uh, 1950, more than 4,000 blacks were lynched, mostly after church on Sunday, lynching parties, and outside of courthouses on the downtown public square. We've not come to grips with that. Uh, 246 years of slavery, where you had labor, free labor for all of those years, um, and you made money, the country made money trading people all those years. There was never a real attempt to repair damage done or reconstruct after two and a half centuries. Some gestures at reconstruction, but they were basically withdrawn so that those who enslaved us kept all the prerogatives. They kept the banks, the education, they had to share the engineering degrees. All of the stuff that made up society was not at all altered. So two and a four to six years of slavery, the infrastructure stayed intact. Another hundred years of segregation, the infrastructure stayed intact. So today you have these gaps of ownership. And there's not a black soft drink company in America because they were, they were let out before blacks even had the right to bargain. All we get out, out the soft drink is the taste. 20,000 auto dealerships, 246 African-American. We just have these huge swaths of economic growth. And effort and excellence means so much. But access uh, and inheritance means even more. And laws of perpetuity. So even talking about race superficially doesn't deal with the issue of equality, racial equality. We just want to end racial humiliation. We must ultimately fight for racial equality. So what I hear you saying is that we have to look beneath the the surface of the problem to the deeper structures of access in order to really begin to get at that deep history of... I was in Birmingham two days ago, and blacks and whites are downtown socializing in the same parks where the dogs want to spit people, and at restaurants they're eating freely together. There's a whole new investment scheme in downtown Birmingham. Blacks can, can eat there but don't, don't own a thing. And the blacks own Hampton Inn, uh, Holiday Inn, uh, car dealerships, uh, franchises, uh, banks, uh, insurance companies, uh, land developers. All that is is the legacy of one group monopolizing that because they have the opportunities to get it. And even the present schemes of discrimination in lending. Someone said that they were, why blacks developing uh, economically faster? Well, you can't.
can't develop unless you, you get you get loans based upon trust and credit. So if you're not trusted and can't get credit, you can't grow. If you face discrimination in lending, you can't grow. Uh, and, and denying access to equality seems to be less offensive than more overt forms of discrimination. We can't grow economically if we can't get access to capital. Okay, how great to swim are you after you can't get access to water? You just can't swim. Well, you've been in this struggle now for more than half a century, and I wonder, what is it that continues to give you hope? Well, every every morning is the is the first morning of opportunity to serve. Every uh, glorious day is uh, the one in which people have needs. Uh, if other people are calling because they have need to go to court and can't get a lawyer, uh, they need a job, or need scholarship, money for education. The other need to fight for fairness, and they need to vote. The, the human needs. Uh, that require service keep on coming. As long as we can keep serving, it, it, it inspires hope. And I try to keep the hope alive. Well, Reverend Jesse Jackson, I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, sir. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. For more than half a century, Reverend Jackson has been a visible and central figure in the civil rights efforts of the United States and abroad. He marched in Selma and worked closely with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He's twice been a candidate for President of the United States and has served as the U.S. Shadow Senator from the District of Columbia from 1991 to 1997. Through the 1970s and 1980s, Reverend Jackson founded several organizations that have now become the Rainbow Push Coalition, a multiracial, multi-issue, progressive, international membership organization fighting for social change. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast at the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. Thank you always for listening. And if you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you haven't missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And remember, you can find out about all of this and more at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. As we continue our theme this week of looking back at the marches at Selma 50 years ago, it does us well to think about the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. A recent book by Dr. Cornell West has sought to reinvigorate the radical side of Martin Luther King. Katie Scroggin offers this review. All too often, the images and ideas of activists and revolutionaries get tamed by time, as their records of speech and action become both a part of the past and an established piece of history. They're cutified, the radical nature of their words domesticated, decontextualized, and appropriated for ends that they would have opposed. Their well-known phrases isolated and placed on inspirational posters to hang in the workplace. The pattern is especially evident with Martin Luther King, Jr., 
whose image and voice now grace ads for companies such as Alcatel and Mercedes, and are called in to justify actions and attitudes that have survived his attempts to eradicate them, attempts epitomized by a guest on Fox News using letter from a Birmingham jail to denounce expanded health care, something King called for. Scholar and social critic so- Scholar and social critic Cornell West aims to combat this situation with The Radical King, a collection of the leader's speeches that make evident his frequent opposition to the very way in which society was often structured, opposition that entailed far more than the harmless warm fuzziness and gentle goodwill many would like to attribute to him today. West organizes the collection according to four themes. The first is radical love, a notion that King repeatedly emphasized had nothing to do with sentimentality or passivity and was neither remotely easy nor did it attempt to avoid pain or conflict. In explaining this concept, this section includes King's account of the Montgomery bus boycott, a difficult and often dangerous undertaking for those involved in it, an endeavor that required unimaginable amounts of work, sacrifice, and patience to fundamentally transform an entire municipal system set on, st- set on staying just the way it was. Here and elsewhere, radical love appears in King's commitment to seeing his opponents' perspectives, to understanding their reasons for resisting change, and to keeping anger at their actions from causing him to speak or act hatefully toward his adversaries. King often credits Gandhi with revealing to him how one acts out of such love, and this section includes his thoughts on the Indian activist and his success in, quote, not seeking to defeat or humiliate the enemy, but to win his friendship and understanding. Such a commitment speaks to the importance of community in King's thought, a fundamental reality which, if it is to survive and be well, must address poverty and economic injustice, what the minister called the inseparable twin of racial injustice. Combating these ills is what King alleged Christianity is about at its core, a protest, as he said, against unfair treatment of the poor. The second category West uses is prophetic vision, the ability to understand the way in which systems of all sizes, from small groups to nations and the capital flows that link them, affect the so-called least of these. From militarism to racism to colonialism, King describes how seemingly disconnected systems and attitudes are in fact interrelated and interdependent and work for the benefit of a few at the expense of the many. Whether examining the Vietnam War or North American exploitation of Central and South America, King illuminates how ruling powers are skilled in pitting against each other, members of the world's oppressed and lower classes, communities who should be working with each other to eliminate poverty and injustice instead of fighting each other on behalf of what we today might call the 1%. Even the very understanding of peace promulgated by the elite, says King, is disingenuous and self-defeating from the beginning, since it sees peace as the mere cessation of armed conflict and pursues it with the means of threatened physical force, with negotiators, quote, accompanied by brands of big accompanied by brands of brigands, accompanied by bands of brigands, each bearing unsheathed swords. And all too often, that force is engaged in protecting property at the expense of people. The third group of essays concentrates on nonviolence as a strategy for combating many of the systemic injustices discussed in previous sections and elaborated upon here, especially the crime of white supremacy. Essential to nonviolence is radical love, examined earlier. 
in dispelling the myth that nonviolence is really just a cowardly way of avoiding confrontation, King explains how power and love are not opposed to each other, but are in fact dependent on each other for their efficacy. Power, says King, is not a hold or command one person or nation has over another. Rather, it is, quote, the ability to achieve purpose. And living as we do in interdependent community, quote, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. But, King says, anyone who tries to maintain such a delicate balance and who thus struggles against the security of the powers and systems that be could very well get him or herself killed. The fourth and final group of essays focuses on King's commitment to the struggle against poverty, a reality that he saw was linked to a variety of other issues, such as workers' rights and the Vietnam War, the latter of which King declared the enemy of the poor, since it diverted a tremendous amount of resources from efforts that could have been employed to address the needs of the underprivileged. The minister's, the minister's support for what West calls progressive trade unionism and his assertion that genuine equality means economic equality, provide a logical basis for King's support of socialist leader Norman Thomas and his still radical proposals for unemployment, health, and maternity insurance and for a guaranteed minimum wage, all discussed in this section. The failure of the U.S. to enact these and other policies caused King to warn his country that if America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of if America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life, she too will go to hell. As the book makes evident, were King with us today, he would still be taken as offensive and subversive by many of those who now declare their support for him. He would undoubtedly be calling for justice in Ferguson and Baltimore, probably still explaining as he did about the riots of the 1960s that, quote, the great tragedy is that the nation continues in its national policy to ignore the conditions that brought the riots or the rebellions into being, and lamenting the fact, quote, that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, humanity, and equality. His willingness to follow Gandhi in engaging what he called internal criticism to the point that he saw the shortcomings of his own people would be attacked as unpatriotic, as would his assertions that our treatment of the least of these only drove people to look favorably upon communist, maybe read today as socialist, ideas. The minister's emphasis on people and community instead of rampant individualism the minister's emphasis on people and community, instead of rampant individualism and property as the ultimate good, would fly in the face of many commentators blaming of the poor for their plight, and would be decried as a protest against the celebration of and desire to hand over power and privilege to so-called job creators. Finally, King's statements on militarism and the Vietnam War would probably be extended today to the current U.S.-led fight against terrorism, especially its use of drone attacks, as evident in declarations such as the Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Although West's commentary in this collection isn't particularly extensive, he does make clear with the selections he's included and the introductions he provides for each section that much of U.S. society has forgotten just how threatening to established social structures and attitudes King's ideas were and indeed remain. 
by going back to the leader's most explicit assertions of what he thought was needed and how we were to achieve it. We are reminded not only of the difficult battles he and so many others fought with him, but that now as then, the love he practiced and about which he spoke was anything but the gentle meekness we'd so like it to have been. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer, and, I should note, she was recently promoted as well to being our staff ethicist. And congratulations on that, Katie. She reviewed The Radical King, a collection of sermons by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, edited and introduced by Cornell West. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.